In our efforts to speak, in our exhaustion from going unheard, in the healing we've postponed, and the empty chairs that stay cold, God of the warm blanket, steady our bodies as your presence pulls us close. When our drapes are closed and our screens are lit, God, our neighbor, pull us into the arms of others where we'll discover the cleansing embrace of you. We light a candle tonight for peace, the dream of it and the struggle for it, as we hold the hands of those who hold our hearts. God of peace, give us the courage to take in your cure and the clarity to see that there can be no peace for anyone until there is peace for everyone. Together we say, we light a candle for peace. May we rise up together with all and for all. Hey, good evening, church, friends, and family. My name is Matt Mowbray. I'm one of the pastors here at the table, and we are so grateful, glad, joyous, everything in between, that you're here with us again on a Sunday night in this medium where we get to be together without, you know, fully being together. It's good to be here with you, though, in this thing, in this together. Thank you for saying yes. Thank you for showing up. Uh, if you're just jumping in for the first time in quite some time, let me catch you up, up to speed real quick. We just wrapped up our series, I Wish Somebody Would Have Told Me. And I got to tell you right now, like, I thought it was awesome. Like, it was such a, and I say that too, like, I should also probably tell you that I'm not even a big series guy, really. I mean, I, I, I don't mind them, not necessarily like opposed, but they just always feel a little markety and not really the bread and butter of what church is all about. But I love this one because we weren't asking people who were sharing to go into the latest research or the books and tell us a nugget of wisdom that you found. We're saying to go into yourself, go to those places where you picked up some pain and what was the gift buried beneath it? What did you not just come out of, but what did you come out with? And man, I felt like from Maggie Keller, Debbie Manning, Lynn Giovanelli, BJ Scoo, like gift, 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 gift. And we all got a little wider because of it. And so if you haven't checked out that series, we just wrapped it up. We have it on the podcast. It is worthy of your time and attention. I promise you. Tonight is our first night of Advent. And as a community, we are going through Scott Erickson's new book, uh, An Honest Advent, because that's, that's, that's kind of what we're aspirationally all about. I mean, it's we do this every year. I mean, this tone and this, this kind of theme of sorts, it's always congruent with this idea of we're not going to stand before you and demand from you that you deck the halls with boughs of holly and plaster a smile on your face 24-7. And that would feel especially weird in the stretch that we're in right now. We want to approach this story as we actually are. Yes, we want to hold out hope and, and see the mystery and the magic and the beauty of the teenage girl who gets pregnant by God and the magi who go searching after the star and the star that breaks open the darkness and the shepherds who are thirsty for a home. All of that is, is important and beautiful and worthy of our attention, but so is what is happening in here. And so we're going to both be um, looking for the love, reminding ourselves that we are loved and that everything in us and around us, it belongs. Everything that we are experiencing, everything that we are coming into Advent with, it, it has weight and it matters. And so the invitation that we are asking our community that we are taking seriously for ourselves is that we would approach this season honestly. Um, and I know that can be a 
not as easy as it sounds. Tonight though is for us our first Advent Sunday and before I get into where I intend for us to go, let me just name the elephant in the room because I can feel like the anxiety seeping on the other side of the camera like Matt are you going to leave this pastor gig to become a professional male model now that you look so flippin' beautiful in that bronze skin? The answer is maybe. Uh, I haven't been approached by a modeling agency quite yet, but obviously I'm open to any offers that come my way. Uh, but I will explain where this, where this, this, uh, uh, the beauty came from. I was down in Florida. We had initially to plan to take a six-day trip down and back to Florida with the family at my uncle's house. And we got to day number six and recognized there's no school for our kids back home. Lauren's still doing all of her stuff online. And you and I know we're not doing church together quite yet. So we figured, oh, maybe we squeeze this six-day trip into a two-week trip. And you give a mouse a cookie and quickly it became a three-week trip. I'm actually not sure why I'm here right now. I don't know why we returned, um, but uh, something about rhythm and regularity. Or I can't remember what my wife said to me. But I do want to tell you about one of the people that I met down in Florida. There's this guy named Clint Eager. Clint is an artist. Clint has a gallery. Now, I'd like to fancy myself as an aspirational artist. I'm not very good quite yet, but my son and I, Wyatt, we both love art. We love to draw. We love to paint. We love looking at art. We love talking about art. We love uh, pretending like we are like snobby about art. We just love art. And so Wyatt was by my side and we went into this gallery and nobody else was there but these beautiful masterpieces by Clint Eager when suddenly Clint came in. And we started just bombarding this, this poor man with questions about his art. Like, what kind of paint did you use? How long have you been painting? What kind of brush do you use? Is there a particular brush style that you, that you tend to employ more than others? What about the canvas, the paper, the context? What, how, how did you go into this work? And, and he starts unfolding a little bit and telling us some of his life story, born and raised in South Africa, where he uh, said at the earliest age, as like Wyatt's age, he was already drawing and painting the animals that shared the land that he lived on in Africa and um, when I when I asked him more questions I brought him over to this one particular masterpiece that was this beautiful painting of this lion and it was overwhelmingly good like inspirational things when you look at this up close and I said like how did you go about doing that I'm not asking for you to share like every secret of your process but like how did you like did you find like a reference photo online and then you just kind of like painted it and he said oh, no 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 if I'm going to do the work then I have to do the work and so I went back home to South Africa camera in hand and I took the photos of the animals that I wanted to paint because I know as an artist that I can only truly express what I myself have experienced I can only make seen what I myself have seen plus you know it's People can smell a phony from a mile away. And I said, absolutely, isn't that just the truth? As I was like looking at his pieces, trying to figure out which one of them I could copy and put my name on. But I'll tell you about Clint because uh, it raises that question that we live with, right? It is that question that, that is embedded in our communal life together. It is the question that I feel like I preach at least one sermon a week on. It is that question that we can never outrun. And that question is, what is keeping you from fully living as you? What is keeping you from fully being who you actually are? The person that God created, loved, wired into being. What's, what is keeping you from living into that fullness? And why is it that we call our lives a story while insisting on somebody else's plot? Because we do. 
In fact, human beings, we actually uniquely do this. As far as I'm aware, speaking of animals, there's no other creature on God's green earth that has this unique capacity that we have to actually examine who we are and denounce it and opt for something else. We are the only ones who do that. There are no lions walking around like panda bears. There are no trees walking around like Ferraris. Only human beings can say, this is who I am, that is not enough, and so I'm going to do this instead. And Jesus is constantly inviting us to go in the other direction, into the abundance of life, the freedom from the fear, and into the arms of love. And so what is keeping us from going there? Now, I'm not a psychiatrist, married one, uh, but uh, that doesn't really, like the wisdom doesn't transfer just through marriage. But I do have this basic understanding, I think, of, of why it is so difficult for human beings, why it's so difficult for us to loosen our grasp on what is artificial and actually move into something more authentic. And if I may, let me just try to give you a, a mile high synopsis on what this actually looks like. Let me do it through using this video from Talent Sprout. If, if you're going to be authentic, if you're going to be honest, if you're going to live this authentic life as a true expression of your actual experience, then this requires that you first are aware that you are a creative and conscious being, a created self. Now, this awareness is an intentional practice of observation. It is the ability to be able to objectively watch what is happening in you as if it were happening in somebody else. It is the observer that's in each of us. And I mean that. That really is accessible in each of us because we all are born aware. And then as we grow up and life comes at us with highlights and hardships, our sense of self-awareness tends to develop and it allows us to observe ourselves at an even deeper level, what we think and feel and say and what we do and what we don't do. This is why like Dashboard Confessional is so good at what they do and why they're so essential for a healthy society because they allow us to feel our deeper emotions. Let me just keep going here. Consciousness is a part of your awareness that eventually branches off as it becomes shaped by the sources of influence in our everyday lives. And so I'm talking about your mom and your dad and the teachers, coaches, friends, popular kids, Hollywood, Dashboard Confessional, Twitter. It is how we normally experience ourselves and how we think we are perceived by the world around us. And so our sense of self-satisfaction then is based on the standards of other people's reactions, regardless of whether or not their standards are worth keeping. To be self-conscious, which is fueled by this fear of rejection, is when we make judgments about ourselves off of only with the things that we can see, as well as how we think we are being seen by others. When we're being self-conscious, this is typically termed by being or having a monkey mind or carrying on this internal dialogue, negative self-talk. It goes something like, I'm so stupid or uh, I'm weak, I'm fat, my nose is so weird. Oh, and then there's this and that and always and never. I mean, does any of that sound familiar to any of you or is it just me? Have any of you stood in front of a mirror and just cringed before? Or think about a situation that might make you a little nervous. Maybe you're standing in front of a group of people that you don't really know, but that you're really hoping they'll like you, and you've been tasked with giving a talk. Before you even say one word to them, what are you already saying to yourself? Oh man, I'm not very funny or witty for that matter. This is gonna be a train wreck. There is a hot mess coming down the highway. What if somebody asks me a question that I can't answer? I'm gonna look like a complete idiot if I screw this up. This is the self-critic on the mic. 
This is what Anne Lamott calls Radio K F. I mean, she doesn't say F, but given church context, we'll go with Radio K F because all it does is play over and over in our minds how F we are. And it does so with this edge and coldness and cruelty to its words that is worse than anything we have ever said to anybody else, but we seem to have no problem with saying to ourselves. Once our self-critic has done its job and it has left us in this puddle with no identity to cling to and it has convinced us that we really are as ugly and stupid and weak as we feared we may be, in order to compensate, we, we costume up. We learn how to do the dance. We learn how to do the, we learn how to climb the different social ladders that are out there. We start to put measures into place to protect ourselves, to achieve, gain approval, seek applause, avoid rejection, prevent pain. And as tragic as it is to see those who are fearfully and wonderfully made make lives out of fear without any wonder at all, the greater tragedy is that it actually ends up working. The performance is accepted, applauded, accredited, affirmed. The enrollment is offered, the job is given, the friends are made, the toasts are lifted. People say your name and they know who you are, but you still have no peace because you still don't and we, we still won't. I think on some basic level, correct me if I'm wrong, not right now in the chat, but later personally so nobody else can see that you're correcting me. But I think on some level we can all feel that there's a gap between who we are and who we are. Do you know what I'm saying? Between the, the big capital W, who we are, and the performance that we put on. I think that we can all sense that we, we kind of costume up and armor up and we, we do what we need to do to get who we need to get and find some sense of inclusion, some sense of connections, the relationships, the friends. Yes, our friendships might be based on just fantasy football and we don't really skimp much past the surface. Yes, I can't tell you that he's ever said something vulnerable to me, even though we've been friends for 35 years. Yes, but like, at least we're friends. At least I'm in the circle. At least we're connected. At least I have some sense of significance and meeting at play here. I don't want to risk that. This is actually why I have so much empathy for the task that Jesus takes on, his prophetic work, because there are those prophets out there like your Moses and Mandela and Kings who, who go to the enslaved and they tell them they could be free. But then there are the prophets like Jesus who go to the free and tell them that they are enslaved. Tell them that how they think they are living, it is not healthy, it is only hiding, it is hell. And I mean that, literally, or, or at least etymologically. Hell is born out of this proto-Germanic term, halja, which means something that is buried, concealed, hidden. It is a thing beneath another thing. When, when the early followers of Christ were using the language of hell and trying to talk about these things, they borrowed from the Greek language the word Hades, which is the, the underneath world, the hidden world. We cannot see it, we cannot access. The god of that world is Pluto. Pluto was also known as the god specifically of buried minerals. And you think about our solar system, the one rock that is the farthest away, that is the coldest, that is the most distant and hard to find is named Pluto. And so hell, at least etymologically speaking, is a state or a thing that is at odds with being seen as it actually is. It's the hidden ones. It's the mask. It's Adam and Eve climbing to the top of that tree while God walks in the garden below. It's us. And like while we may be able to break it down and go like, yeah, it's, it's stupid, but it also is very safe because contrary to our popular imaginations when we think about hell, it is actually this foolproof uh, pain prevention program, it will just cost us our lives to live there, but we'll pay it. I mean, won't we? Maybe it's just me, again, maybe I'm projecting, but uh, 
I have spent so much of my life building a home inside of hell, of building a home inside of these systems of hiding and pretending and suppressing, um, doing everything in my power to pass off as lovable because something at my core is convinced that I am not. Since the very first moment when we recognized that you can't have a bad hair day at school, you can't show up in sweatpants, you'll get made fun of if you tell the truth or whatever the thing may be, the thing that pushed you up into the tree while God walked in the garden below. We have lived as if the very truth about our lives is a liability to what we want most out of our lives. And that thing is an unmitigated connection to other people and to our God. And so if leaving hell and getting honest means risking love and acceptance and inclusion, then I'm probably a hard pass on that idea. I'll just make a home for the rest of my days in here. I won't let myself, and maybe you will, uh, I just don't see myself allowing myself to be seen if I'm not convinced that it is safe to do so. And that's true with how I show up with you all. That's true with how you show up with me. And it's also true with how we tend to show up with God. Because if I have to armor up and wear a costume and hide my brokenness around people who are just as messed up as me, then why on earth would I assume that somehow this is going to be allowed in the presence of a perfect God? The calculations just, they don't check out. And yet when John writes his gospel, it's as if he is saying, I know, right? And that's what's so amazing about this word that became flesh and dwelt among us. When John sets out to write his incarnation story, incarnation, which is the process of becoming seen. When John talks about how the experience of God is now becoming an acute expression of God. When John sets out to tell that specific story, John writes that the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son. Now pause and ask John, what do you mean when you say you've seen the glory? What exactly did you see? I need some more details. That feels like a big deal. Fill, fill in the blanks here. John says, well, here's what I saw. The word became flesh and it was full of grace and truth. Of all the different attributes that must have jumped out at John about Jesus, the thing that was most pronounced in the top of the priority charts was the fact that in this one body was brimming to fullness both grace and truth. And you just don't find that in people. That stands out to John because we don't see that in people. John didn't see it in people and we don't see it in people. We either find people who are uh, grace-driven but kind of truth-allergic or they're truth-driven but they're kind of punks and jerks and kind of cold about the whole thing. In most of us, it tends to be an either or an or. And the same was true for John. John would say that, you know, like if you're trying to get a job and you need some references, you're gonna wanna call up your grace-driven crew and ask him to fill that slot because the truth tellers, they're gonna talk a little bit too much. I'm sure Mark Hirschfeld has already filled you in on that career tip. Now, flip side though, if you are going to the doctor because you've got something funky going on in your body and you want some kind of explanation, the person with the stethoscope around your neck, you are hoping that they are a truth teller and not a grace-driven person because you want to know what is actually happening regardless of the comfort that it might cost you to find out. John knew people like this, we know people like this, and so it makes sense that we would think that God is like that too. Like God is this one being that has somehow these two opposing minds. Like God is both this ruler of rigid absolutes while simultaneously somehow being the merciful loophole. Like, like God is 
the father who will berate you if you get an A minus in physics and forget to tuck your shirt in all the way, while simultaneously being the mom who comes in in the aftermath of the berating and says, don't worry, honey, he is just very tired right now. He had a big day at work. He's got a lot going. I'll talk to him. Everything is going to be just fine. We, we kind of have that image when we think about the unimageable God and think about when we let that idea fester long enough because essentially it will leave us hoping and wishing and praying that at the end of all of our days and we get to heaven's door that somehow one part of God will spare us from another part of God, that somehow mom will come in and protect us from dad. Friends, that is not good news. That is what you call trauma and it needs to stop because it's keeping you stuck. It keeps us believing in the covering of hell instead of actually receiving a covering that helps. It keeps us believing that we are here to perform our lives instead of participate in our lives, that we are at our best when we are presenting something good regardless if that something good is actually what is true. John says that there is a covering though that precedes your uncovering. There is a better covering than the one that Pluto or Hades or hell has to offer. John says that what stands out to him when he sized up from head to toe the son of love, what, what struck him most as beautiful and odd was that in this one body was not either grace nor truth, but the both and of grace and truth, 100% grace, 100% truth, all of it embodied, intertwined together in him grace and truth. Not these dueling antagonistic polarities, but these two dancing partners that are moving in the direction of love. And the first word is grace, or charis, as we say it in Greek, you know, when we're talking Greek together. That is also the word that we get a uh, gift from. And that's the idea of grace. I mean, Dallas Willard, he once said that grace isn't necessarily opposed to all of your efforts, but grace is allergic to your earning. You can't earn grace because you can't earn a gift. I don't care what kind of lists Santa does or does not have with the naughty or nice. You cannot earn a gift. Grace is goodness perpetually coming at you regardless of what you are responding with in return. Regardless of whether or not you've earned it or deserved it. It is God perpetually emptying her pockets for the sake of your well-being and wholeness and health. That is grace. And it is the first word that John writes about the word. John says that the first thing that you need to know about the Christ is that the Christ knows all about you and came for you all the same. The Christ knows all about you and claims you all the same. The first thing you need to know about the Christ is that the Christ is a better covering than the one that Pluto had to offer. And that's important because the next word John says is that Christ is also filled with the truth. Alethias. Alethias is a word that would imply something being hidden or concealed or covered up, but you throw the A modifier on the front and then it flips it upside down. In the same way where a person who is rooted in character and convictions and some kind of frame, we might call them a moral person, but the person who has no character and no convictions, we would call them amoral. It modifies it. It flips the house upside down. And so when we're talking about what is truth, I mean, from the baseline biblical perspective, truth is the isness that rests beneath the isn'tness. It's the reality that's underneath the unreality. This is why when we talk about scientific breakthroughs, we don't call them scientific inventions. We call them scientific discoveries because we have found something here that has been here the whole time, 
we just now are finding out. This is why we talk about Christ as the light of the world. Lights do not produce anything new. They reveal what has been here the whole time. Truth is the is that rests beneath what isn't, and truth is the invitation for you to leave who you never were. And you can say yes to that invitation because you're safe to be seen. Think about it like this. Maybe this will help if I use an image. Go back with me to the days of yore when we would have those times where we would size up our wardrobe and be less than enthused by what we saw and felt like maybe I could use a new pair of pants, maybe I could use a sweater. We would then go to a place that we called the mall. That's mall, M-A-L-L. And in the mall, there were a variety of different stores, retail stores, where they would sell us clothing to wear. Now, when we go into the stores that was that was kind of our um, aspirational target, we'd walk up to the rack of the clothes that we thought we needed, and we would visually try to imagine, will this make my butt look good? Will this make my eyes really pop? All of the questions that we ask when we're looking at new pieces of clothes. The problem, of course, is that left to our own mental devices, we probably won't get the most accurate of answers. And so we need to try this on. And so if we do so in the spot, if we want to find the truth right then and there, we'll do that, I guess. We'll strip down butt naked and put on these new sets of clothes because we want to find out what we look like and it might work I mean you might get a good idea what you look like in that new outfit but you for sure are gonna find out what you look like on the nightly news the stores they recognized this problem and so they made a space within this space they called this space the changing room it was just separated from the rest of the room by sometimes a thin piece of fabric or a flimsy old door but it was enough of a space for you to come inside of it take off what you are wearing and try on some transformation while mirrors surrounded you on both sides showing you this is who you actually are in many ways that's what grace does for truth so many people are afraid to come out of the hell that is their hiding because they do not know about the changing room and when you do not know that it leaves you to believe that you have to do this or be that or stand there and say that then if i do all these things and do them perfectly then i will be loved then i'll be enough then i'll be finally at peace but the changing room the grace of christ the covering of christ it says you already have everything you need it says that your love does not need to be reached for because your love can be received it says that you are fully safe to be fully seen and nobody will leave the room. You can show me the worst of what you got going on in you and I will never step away from your side. I'm in your corner thick and thin because grace precedes the truth. Grace comes before the undressing. Grace comes before the opening up. John says that Jesus was filled to the brim with both grace and with truth. If it's just grace, it's meaningless. And if it's just truth, it's, it's just mean. But when you put the two together, you have liberation. You have freedom. You have the safety to be seen. And so I'm going to ask you the question that I'm going to ask you again and again this Advent. How are you doing? I mean, like, really, how are you doing? Knowing that there's no performance that you need to do, there's just a presence that we're inviting you into. How are, what's going on in you? How are you handling this season? Are you hopeful during Advent? Are you scared? Are you sad? What are you carrying with you as you enter into this season? And how can we be in your corner as we help take off one another's armor and fully be present, naked and unashamed, before the God who calls us good enough? before the Christ who covers us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. May we have the courage to do the same. You are loved. We'll see you next week.
I love Advent. God with us. And John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I always find that so beautiful and so comforting. And tonight in Matt's message, he talked about the word, the word that's full of grace and truth and that grace and truth which covers us and at the same time uncovers us. It allows us to be who we are, where we are. And in that place, we actually can experience vulnerability. And it's in that vulnerability that we're able to connect deeply and intimately with God and one another. And this table that we come to every Sunday night when we share in communion is exactly that. It's this place of truth and grace. It's this place that we can be vulnerable with God and one another. The night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples and they were sharing a meal and he broke bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup and after pouring wine into the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you the new covenant. I've come for everyone. So when we eat the bread and we drink from the cup, we remember, we remember this God that is full of grace and truth. A God that calls us to that grace and truth. A God that calls us into relationship. A relationship that's undergirded with vulnerability and authenticity. And that leads us to intimacy. So as you take your bread and you dip it into your cup, remember these words. The body of Christ broken for you. His blood shed for you. And now together let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.